As we continue our study in the book of James, we come to the third chapter in the, the last section there. Uh, last time was talked about the tongue. We'll get into that a little bit as I think it kind of sets the tone. Uh, but the wisdom that is being discussed here is the difference between uh, demonic wisdom is the way that the, the phrasing was given and uh, heavenly wisdom or godly wisdom. So uh, we'll look at both. But to understand uh, wisdom, I'd like to... I'm not necessarily endorsing the movie, uh, but want to kind of draw a scene here. This is from the movie Braveheart. In the movie Braveheart, you have a man by the name of William Wallace who is uh, known, uh, who actually existed and lived and led a rebellion against uh, the British Empire because they were invading Scotland and ruling Scotland at the time. And so he was leading a rebellion. But as a young boy, as he was shown here, uh, he had lost his father to battle, and I don't know where his mother was. Evidently, he lost her already. Uh, and his uncle comes along and says, you're going to come home with me. And as they're standing there listening to the lament with played on bagpipes over the death of those that were in battle, uh, he looks over at his uncle's sword, and his uncle hands it over, and, and he looks at it for a minute, and then his uncle takes it back away from him, and he says, uh, do you want to learn to use that, basically? And he says, well, I, yes. Uh, that's my Scottish impression. Or, or my other one is, Brady! But there you go. Uh, so uh, he is um, looking at that sword, asking him if he wants to learn how to use it. And he says, first learn to use this, then I'll teach you to use this. And he's talking about the sword. So he's going to teach him how to use his brain first. Now that sets the tone a little bit about what we're going to talk about this evening. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We wield a mighty weapon, and that weapon is the word of God. And it's more powerful than any two-edged sword or double-edged sword. It's more powerful than any weapon that can be used against man, it's greater than all principalities and powers as we uh, look at other things. It's, it's stronger than any tank, any air force, anything like that. And we have that contained in the book, the Bible. And so that's how powerful that is. And we must learn to use it, to wield it. Uh, in James 3 and verse 1, uh, he says there that... Uh, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. You see, the idea is so far as he is talking about being a teacher in chapter 3 of James. And he says we need to uh, make sure that you are wielding that weapon appropriately because judgment comes to those who are teachers. And then he goes on and he talks about the tongue. I still think this is in the framework of those that are teachers. As he continues on in verse 2, following verse 1, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So he begins talking about the person who's a teacher, to be careful of what you speak, careful of what you say, because you received a stricter judgment. Not many are, are teachers, but if you are, then you might stumble in many things, and we stumble also in word, and if you can hold that back, well, you're, you're a good man. You're a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. And he begins to use some illustrations to 
show us what it means, uh, that, that tongue. And he talks about bridling the tongue like a horse. And he talks about the rudder of a ship. And he talks about a small fire and how it kindles a forest fire. And this is uh, something that we know very much of. It's been in the news in California of the, small, of the huge fire that occurred from a campfire. So he's using those to illustrate the kind of uh, power that is in the tongue, in our speech, and what we say. And so that's why teachers receive a stricter judgment, because the tongue is a powerful uh, tool and a powerful weapon. So now he goes on in verse 13 of James chapter 3, and he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So now he transitions from the speech of the person who's teaching to the character or the integrity of the person who is teaching. And he says, you need to be wise in that teaching. So if we think about all those different tools, notice that Matthew 15 and verse 18, as Jesus says, uh, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. See, what a person says is what comes from the heart. And therefore, it is necessary, if you're going to bridle the tongue, if you're going to hold back the tongue and, and the tongue should be guided in a certain way, it, it goes to show how he's doing that in James chapter 3. If you control the heart, you control the tongue. If you control your integrity, it controls your speech. So it's natural because those things come out from the man. So the essence of a man's character is his heart. The tongue is simply a tool that the heart uses. And a man with godly heart and character will teach the truth that demands a better life uh, for those who, who he teaches. And on the other hand, a man without godly character can do a lot of destruction. He'll reveal himself as a false prophet or a hypocrite, one or the other, by his speech because that is what is, is in his heart. So in order for a man to control the use of his tongue, he must learn to control his heart. <coughs> the bit in the horse's mouth is guided, the tongue in this case, is guided by the reins of the heart. The rudder or the ship is guided by the steering wheel of the heart. The fire that can start is guided by the spark in the heart and all of those are very powerful things when we talk about certain types of power what do we use horsepower because there's a lot of power in a horse and it could do a lot of damage it could do a lot of good too but when you consider back in the day when uh, people just fought on the ground we had no such thing as air force we had no such thing as submarines you had two methods of fighting. You fought on the ground and you fought in the sea. And he uses both of those here to describe this. On the ground, you use horses. If you have horses and they don't, you have an advantage. If you have a ship and they don't, you have an advantage. The bigger the ship, the better. Because <laughs> you have a greater advantage. And if you have more fire, you have more firepower. And you see how this works. And how destructive they can be, but as well as being a, a great tool to use as well. So it's important that we learn to control those things. 
Before one can be a truly an effective teacher, he must first learn to master the subject. It means that he has an understanding of the message within the context of his own life. <clears throat> Notice in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3, it says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, Let, remove, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if I'm the kind of person that is, is this way, uh, uh, that I am constantly picking at you for all the f- things that you have wrong in your life, and I'm not looking at my own life and trying to figure that out myself, and I'm looking at you with a toothpick in your eye, and I've got a tube before sticking out of mine. You need to remove that toothpick. What are you th- sitting there thinking? <laughs> you need to get rid of the tube before. I lose all credibility, you see. If I'm trying to teach you something and I don't show it by my conduct that I'm trying to live the same way, I lose my credibility. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's how I become a hypocrite. A teacher must be, uh, become a master of the subject by his conduct. And his conduct should express wisdom, knowledge, and meekness. As we continue on in the passage, or notice 1 Timothy 4.16. I added that in, the, in my notes. But he says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So we see the damage that can be done. That as a hypocrite, that I, I lose all credibility, and that damages the Word of God. It makes it less effective. But at the same time, if I would continue in the doctrine, if I continue to do what I need to do, not only will I help myself, but I will save both myself and those that hear me. And so to be that kind of effective teacher, we must be willing and do what God has said to do in meekness and in wisdom and in knowledge. So, if we think about uh, wisdom for just a moment, wisdom is made up of three parts. One is knowledge. So, I see a puzzle, and in this case, I see the cover of that puzzle. I have knowledge of what that puzzle is supposed to look like. So, I, I have an idea of what it should be when I'm finished with that puzzle. I also have understanding that I know how a puzzle works. (laughs) I take one piece that matches the other piece and I put them together. That's how a puzzle works. I have an understanding of that. So I have knowledge and I have understanding. But I'm not very good at puzzles. You know why? I know how they work. I understand how they work. I know what it should look like. I don't do them. They take too much time and too much care and they just don't do it for me. So in puzzle working and I've had to do a few when I was teaching some I had to sit in the room and help somebody do a puzzle they weren't very good at it either (coughs) for one I lack the patience to actually see it all through but so I don't have wisdom when it comes to to a puzzle I know it I understand it but I don't apply it I don't do it and that's how you gain wisdom is you know how it works you understand how it works and you put it to use So if I'm going to be a wise person, 
I need to know the Word of God. I need to understand, work at understanding the Word of God, and then I need to apply the Word of God. So that is wisdom in a nutshell. So continuing on in verse 14 says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, <coughs> do not boast and lie against the truth. So here he is continuing on with this idea of someone who does not have wisdom uh, in their teaching and why they receive a stricter judgment, not only by what they say, as in the previous verses, but now on how they conduct themselves and the motivation behind their teaching. Some teach to promote themselves. Jesus calls, uh, or uh, James calls this motivation bitter, envying, and strife, or self-seeking. And that can be best described as jealousy, and a person who is seeking his own will at other people's expense. That is what it means to be this type of a person. We'll see that exemplified in a person by the name of Diotrephes, and it was a letter that was written by the Apostle John uh, to a church. And he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. I wonder if somebody wouldn't mind going to get me a water, if that's possible. <clears throat> but it says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So we have this Diotrephes character who was keeping people out of the church that should be a part of the church. He didn't even receive the apostles. So he, if you're not receiving the apostles, that also means you're not receiving the apostles' doctrine. What he was about, thank you, was himself. He wanted the power. And if he couldn't have the power, he didn't want the people who had the power to have the power. So, he was saying, I'm going to expose him. <laughs> I'm going to show everything that's wrong about him. Diotrephes, as well as anyone with this type of motivation, has developed a heart problem. Because the motivation is not to get the Word of God out and to not to motivate people to, towards the Word of God, but it's about me. And I want control, and I want power, and I want this, and I want that. That's what you see <coughs> with Diotrephes. And this problem allows the flesh to control the heart. In Galatians 5, 19-21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. <clears throat> this is the type of person that is allowing the flesh to control the heart. And notice that he says that these things are evident. They are manifest. They are clearly seen. This type of attitude or motivation cannot be hidden. They are manifested by the things that he says and the things that he does. You can't hide something like that. Eventually, 
they will clearly be seen. So in James 3, verses 15 through 16, he says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So he gives us two types of wisdom here. One type of wisdom is not directed by God. And he's going to continue on in just a moment. But this particular wisdom that is not directed by God is not godly wisdom at all. He has no part with this type of wisdom. This type of wisdom that men, uh, uh, that men contain are bitter envying and strife or self-seeking in their hearts. He says of earthly wisdom, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. Solomon was the type that went out and looked for everything he could to find the wisdom of man. You'll find in the phrase uh, over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. What he means is on earth from a, pers- from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective. And he sought all kinds of wisdom. He said, I set my heart to know wisdom. Now, when he says, I set my heart to, he had everything afforded him to be able to do that. One, he was the wisest man in the world. Uh, and uh, second to only Jesus in all the world was Solomon. And so he set his heart to know wisdom. So if there was anybody that knew wisdom, it was certainly Solomon. <coughs> Excuse me. But he also... Uh, he had, he had money, he had things, he had everything at his disposal. He knew people, he was a, a, a great ambassador for Israel. Uh, so he, was, he had a, a great uh, amount of people that he could talk to from all parts of the world that he could talk to. And he said, I set out to do that. And not only wisdom, but the flip side. To know madness and folly. So he sought out to not only know the wisdom of things, but why this doesn't work and why this is madness or why this is folly. Foolishness, that's what folly is. So he set out to know it all. And he said, I perceive this grasping for the wind. That's earthly wisdom. That it gained me nothing. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) You're not going to be able to catch it. That's what he was trying to do. But with trying to know wisdom and madness and folly. This wisdom is vain, it's empty, it's grasping at the wind. In Jude 1, or which is the only chapter in verse 17, says, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in that last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. So you have the idea of sensual wisdom. What is the motivation behind sensual wisdom? Whatever I want. Because he talks about these are the type of people that seek their own. That that want their senses to be pleased. And that's why we use the word sensual. That I want to see what I want to see. I want to feel what I want to feel. I want to taste what I want to taste, hear what I want to hear. The senses, that's what it's all, smell what I want to smell. I guess there would be that too. Uh, so you have, that's the type of sensual person. 
And when a person is motivated by what pleases them, that causes divisions. You know why that causes divisions? Because I want what I want, and you want what you want. And if I can't get what I want, you can't, I don't want you to get what you want because I want what I want. And if they're two opposing different things, then I certainly want what I want, and you certainly want what you want. You see where I'm going here. It's natural that that was caused divisions because it's all about me and not about anybody else, and that's why it, is, uh, it causes division. And then he uses the term demonic. In John 8, verse 43 through 44, <clears throat> talks about a man who allows his own passions to drive him, and when a man does this, he allows himself to be in the, under the control of Satan himself. And this is Satan's motivation in John 8, 43. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So the person who follows after demonic wisdom <clears throat> is under the control of Satan and whatever he wants to do. He says, you are of the fa your father the devil because you don't do the will of God. Satan's wisdom is full of lies and it seeks to kill the soul of the listener. And when a man has bitter envying and strife in his heart, he governs his life by a wisdom that is empty. First of all, that's earthly. <clears throat> a wisdom that denies access to the kingdom of God, that's sensual. And murders his own soul, that's demonic. So his life is full of confusion, lacking peace. And we'll get to, I'll show you why that's the case here in just a little bit. So he contrasts that now with heavenly wisdom in verse 17. It says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, <coughs> excuse me, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27 shows us the dichotomy of these two types of wisdom. Notice that the good side, you know, when I hear terms like sensual, when I hear terms like demonic or earthly, I naturally think that those are bad, right? Especially when you throw demonic in there. <laughs> That's bad. So then I contrast that with things like pure, peaceable, gentle, and without partiality, without hypocrisy, mercy, good fruits, willing to yield, all those things. I hear those. That's good, right? So it's easy to see that contrast, but I want you to notice from 1 Corinthians 1. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, <clears throat> God's wisdom is far superior to the wisdom of man. God's wisdom, He has shown us in His simplicity most of the time. 
How simple things are, that if we just apply those things to our lives, how much better we are, how much purer we are, how much more peaceable we are, how much more loving we are, all those things. And how much better those things are than those things of the world that says, I'm going to get what I want and I don't care what it does to you. So he says, this is the wisdom from God that we have in Jesus Christ, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And it's that message that is the wisdom of God. It's that reality that is the wisdom of God that we are a part of. So we have the idea of being pure and peaceable and gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. In the context of what he's talking about in this chapter, remember he talks about teachers, and those teachers need to control the tongue. The tongue is controlled by the heart. The heart is the integrity of the person, so that's how we need to use that. And so our wisdom needs to come from heaven, which are these things. And so as a teacher, I'm applying those things to my life so that I can help others apply those things to their lives. And that's the type of person that we should be looking for to teach and the kind of person that we ought to be as teachers. <clears throat> so in order to become these things, here's the practical application of how to become those things. All of these have to do with each one of those. Number one, pure. What is my motive? Is my motive for me? Is that my motive pure? Is it about doing the greater good? Or is it about doing my own good? So what is my motive? Is it pure? Secondly, would this cause strife or peace? Because the wisdom from God is peaceable. And if at all possible, live peaceably with all men, right? And so I need to sit back and look at, at the decision I'm going to make. Would this offend anyone? Would this hurt somebody else's feelings? Would this cause someone to question their Christianity? To question what the Bible says? To question where they are in standing with God? All those things. Would this cause someone to be so offended that they're willing to walk away from it? Number four. <clears throat> Am I being as compliant as possible? Am I just looking at this from a perspective of I want what I want? Or am I, am I looking at this as this is what is right? And there's certain areas that are kind of gray, if you will. Martha and Mary both had a choice, right? And Mary chose the good part because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was in the kitchen Martha was taking care of Jesus. She was being a good hostess. There was nothing wrong with what she was doing. Because she had a guest in her home, an honored guest, and she was taking care of him. There was nothing wrong with that. But what Mary chose, which was to sit down at Jesus' feet and learn from him, that was better. And so sometimes we're faced with a decision, what is good and what is better. Sometimes we're faced with a decision, is it right or is it wrong? If it comes down to is it right or is it wrong, am I being as compliant as possible? In other words, I can't do something wrong, but what can I comply to? Where, what can I do? Um, number five, would this show compassion? Would I be harsh with someone, or would it show that I truly care about someone? <clears throat> number six, would this, what I'm doing, would it show the fruits of right living? Number seven, am I being fair to everyone involved? 
And number eight, am I being sincere and honest? So if we want to learn to apply wisdom to our lives, we take the Word of God and we allow it to work on us to help us answer these questions so that I can answer those accurately. And when I apply those things to my life, then I can help teach others as well. And in verse 18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of righteousness is contained in the heart of man. It is expressed by his good deeds. It's sown in the message or through the message that is preached. And the teachers equip themselves properly <clears throat> with knowledge and wisdom. The congregation maintains peace. And he promotes peace. His sermons are meaningful. And they're actually touched the lives of the congregation. He speaks with the same peace that he himself lives by. And that's how he sows that message of peace. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. How confusing would it be to anyone who, and I know the context of this is, is about the assembly, <clears throat> and how everything ought to be done decently and in order, and those types of things. But he offers uh, two contrasts here. One is that of confusion, and the other is that of peace. Now if we take that a little further down the road, let's consider just a moment that our congregation was made up of two or three diatrophies. How confusing would that be? Because <laughs> this diatrophies over here wants his way, this one over here wants his way, this one over here wants his way, and they're pulling us in all different directions. That's not peace. Matter of fact, that's why 1 Corinthians, he says, Am, you know, who are you following? Am I Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ? Because they were being pulled in different directions. That's confusion. Peace is when we're all of the same mindset and that judgment of Jesus Christ, that we're going to do what God wants. And that is what sows peace. <clears throat> Matthew 5 and verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I wasn't going to use that verse necessarily, but Jeremy talked on it Sunday, so I thought I'd pull it together, uh, tie those two, these two together. But that's the idea. We need to be peacemakers. That's the wisdom that is from above. And to be a peacemaker means that I don't always get my way as much as I might want to get my way. Everybody wants their way. I always want my way. But it's being willing to go, you know what? This time I'm not going to get my way. I'm going to give that up uh, for the sake of peace. <clears throat> we wield a mighty weapon, and it's the Word of God, and it's such a weapon that we should not take it lightly. First, we should all learn to use... Uh, use our tongue as it's governed by the Word of God, to use the sword of the Spirit. And it's a daunting task to maintain peace within a congregation, but peace can be maintained with a mighty weapon. And this weapon can only be wielded by those equipped with knowledge and wisdom that's displayed in his own life. How do we do that? 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. And we're going to look at this verse but we're going to look at it in three different versions. 2 Timothy 2.15 in the King James Version 
says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In the New King James, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the only real difference here in these two passages that we just read from either version, first word in the King James is study. Second word, first word in the New King James, or first two words, be diligent. We'll see something different in the New American Standard Translation. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. <coughs> Excuse me, as a work, workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Not rightly dividing the word of truth, but accurately handling the word of truth. And by looking at these different definitions, we come with a fourth uh, version of the Bible, and I call this the Rusty Springer Standard Version. Be studious to present yourself a proof to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So you take the idea of all three of them, and you get a good understanding. First of all, be studious. Be diligent in your study. Dig deep. It means to exert oneself to become the man of God that the Father intended. This type of study requires more than just a quick read-through. And this purpose of this study is for a person to identify who he or she is and what he or she needs to become. But secondly, we see that they need to apply it. The knowledge of the Word of God does not perform transformation. Not knowledge alone. It's accurately handling, accurately applying. The other requirement of a a would-be teacher or a student of God's Word is wisdom. And this is the knowledge of God's Word expressed in his or her life. A person may have knowledge, but lack wisdom. You can know it all day, but not know how to apply it. Old age... And experience, that's not what gives anyone wisdom. James tells us how to get wisdom. And that's to ask God, and He'll give it liberally. So whether you're young or you're old, I can have all the earthly wisdom in the world. And I can know what, how things work as far as the earth is concerned and the world is concerned. But that does not make me wise. That wisdom is opposed to the wisdom of God. We've already read that. Age does not... <clears throat> Wisdom is not determined by age. But wisdom is determined by one who is able to use the knowledge to produce godly conduct with meekness. And once a person has mastered the subject in his life, he can begin to teach others to do the same. And that's the message I have from James chapter 3, 13 through 18. I hope it's been helpful and beneficial in some way. If you find yourself to have been lacking in some way and you need the prayers of the church, we stand ready to assist you. If you'll just come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.